0: Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Asking your questions of me is producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, you've got movies getting made and announced left and right. <laughs> this is a good week for you.
1: It was a good week for me. There was there was a, a trailer for The Greatest Beer Run Ever, uh, which is a movie that I'm an associate producer on, and uh, there was an announcement about the movie we shot this summer finally. Um, it's, uh, it's Soulmates, which was our first uh, script that was on the blood list. It's the First script that I ever sold. And Yay. uh and, it's, and, and now uh four producers later it, it's finally been made.
0: <laughs> well, congratulations. You Thank are you. definitely on a run, and I'm happy to see that happening.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah. So uh that one's that one is uh deep into post production. So um, you know, fingers and toes and everything else crossed, it uh it it, it looks as promising as the dailies did, you know. Uh,
0: that will be awesome.
1: Uh, we've got a lot of good questions this week, Mick. Would you like to answer some of them?
0: Oh, let's just answer the good ones. Yeah. That (laughs) sounds like a great idea.
1: (laughs) All right. Away with the bad ones. Yeah. Um, kicking things off is a friend of the podcast, Gary. Uh, Oh, Gary. Oh, old Gary. Uh, Gary asks, has directing a live theater production ever interested either of you?
0: Um, for me, no. Uh, I I wrote a play in college that was produced. I didn't direct it. Yeah, it was produced on the college stage called Symphony for a Million Mice, which is also the title. That sounds familiar. Yes, it's the title of the Horse Feathers album, but the play was written first and it was a title that stimulated uh the band to write a a rock symphony of sorts and it is it is on the horse Feathers cd or album where you can get streaming whatever but no it was a very experimental play um and uh and it was produced at uh, grossmont college outside of san diego uh back in my uh it's a two-year college back in my early college days but i'm not particularly drawn to the theater the theater relies more upon artifice because it has to play at a distance. Um, You know, to be able to control the storytelling with the choice of lenses and editing and music and all of those other elements that help you focus uh, and help you create an audience's attention, directing it specifically to me is, Is much more interesting a challenge than to put it on the stage not that putting something on the stage isn't challenging it's just that i'm not as interested in proscenium work as i am in cinematic work
1: that's fair enough does the uh the 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 play and the album do they share some creative crossover other than just the title
0: uh the music was used in the uh performance of the play.
1: Oh that's but, pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So
0: so it has a history. I hadn't even thought about that until Gary asked his question. I haven't thought about that play which was done when I was 18 or 19 years old. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, when I was uh when I was a kid, uh I was uh I had like one foot in the the theater world um and uh you know, I, I acted in a couple of things, surprisingly. Uh-huh. Um uh-huh. I was I was in I was in probably most notably The Wizard of Oz. Wow. Um, I was also in uh uh a Buffy the Vampire Slayer one act fan play. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well in grade school I did that I was in Snow White I was the narrator on stage when I was in the 5th grade. Oh so.
1: uh, that's fun. That's fun. Um but I I I you know can't say that I stuck with it nor has uh, there been a real nag for me to to return to the theater uh, nobody's calling uh, no, no it's, it's weirdly nobody uh nobody really picked up on me playing uncle henry back in the day uh, you'll you know, have to people.
0: you'll have to satisfy yourself with uh, screenwriting success
1: <laughs> yeah i guess so uh all right eric wonders what props have you kept over the years why those specific ones and which do you cherish the most and are there any you wish you had kept
0: Oh, well, there's a lot of questions in one.
1: Boom, 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 um, boom.
0: I'm looking at one right now, which is the year dead mother, Norma Bates from Psycho 4, who's sitting in my director's chair, sitting right across from yes, my desk she, she here. watches
1: over our all over all of our in-person podcasting.
0: That's uh, right. Um, I also have, and it's about to be restored. Um, one of the topiary lions from the Shining miniseries. Um, I have a butcher knife, a, a reflective butcher knife from Psycho 4. I have a reproduction of book from Hocus Pocus. Um, I have maquettes. I have a head from uh, a movie called Virtual Obsession that uh, is sitting on top of a pinball machine here at uh, world headquarters. <laughs> Uh, not
1: not uh, not before it smashes though right yeah Uh. i have a (laughs)
0: yes i have a couple of heads uh that were designs Uh, i have a mask from charles brady's uh halfway evolved face in sleepwalkers that's here in the office um a handful of things like that oh and from desperation the cantas which are the the iconography the icons created by the magical uh, otherworldly uh, um, members of the uh, Desperation
1: Evil League. That's pretty awesome. You know, uh, Alejandro was able to take home uh, not just one of the spiders from his Nightmare Cinema segment, but he also uh, just recently got the uh, splitting head uh, bust of Sarah Withers. Ooh, um, yes yes that is now and is probably displayed in his home oh
0: one um, other thing i have is that uh mickey rourke gave me the brace on his leg as his character uh, uh, of the projectionist he's wearing a brace and he gave that to me as uh memorabilia
1: we're going to be talking about mickey a little later in the episode too oh boy um i will say alejandro did uh did get probably the the um Asked him to, you know, make more than one, but apparently it wasn't in the budget for our net, upcoming Netflix movie. There's a, a key prop that he took home that I would have loved to have had one of, but uh, you know, we'll, you're we'll not going to be able to movie. tell us what it is. I cannot tell you what it is yet, Mick. Right. Uh, we can revisit this conversation after the movie comes out, <laughs> all right? Fair enough, but uh, but he got that, and then um, you know, soulmates. I this isn't much of a spoiler, the characters are handcuffed to each other throughout the bulk of the movie um i'm really wondering what happened to those uh, that those cuffs and chain uh I hope the yeah because got you
0: on. could put them to good use i know
1: uh, absolutely uh <laughs> oh crystal yeah uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right uh pat writes love the podcast thank you pat thank you uh, pat my favorite stephen king novel is the very underrated rose Matter. At one point in the late 90s, HBO was developing it as a film. Do you think it would work in film or TV then and or now? Perhaps you were involved in the aborted, pun not intended, HBO adaptation. (laughs) I would love to know.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book, and it's written in the first person as a female, which I think was a really um, great experiment that King... A great and successful experiment that King uh, partook in. Uh, it's a very internal book. And there are a lot of things that are expressionistic that once you literalize them on the screen, I think you'd have a problem with that. Um, I I think it's a really, uh, not all books should be made into movies, uh, even all Stephen King books. And maybe someone could tackle that and use the the ethereal and surrealistic elements and figure out a way to put them on the screen but i think they play better in the mind than they would on the screen Uh, i remember when hbo was developing it and It just seemed like, but then again, The Stand seemed like an unproducible movie as well. And it turned out
1: As did a lot of people think, Gerald's Game.
0: Gerald's Uh, Game, yeah. And and that was another one I really wanted to do, but it ended up in the very good hands of our friend Michael. That's right. Uh, So this is one, it would be very tough to pull off. Um, Some of the elements that play great on the page would be- maybe ridiculous on the screen or certainly hard to feel grounded uh, as you need most movies to feel uh, if you're not going into a comic book world. But, you know, she goes into a a dream world that is highly stylized in the book and, and very cerebral. And I, I'm repeating myself, but I think it would be very difficult to translate to film.
1: Well, there you have it. Speaking of other difficult to adapt Stephen King books, Hans asks, we all know the dark tower is quite an ambitious project. If ever attempted again, Nick, what would it need in your opinion to be properly adapted?
0: Um, a lot of money, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, King and I talked about doing it as a series for HBO years ago, back in the nineties, um, to do it as a miniseries for HBO, Um, it would be easier to do than Rose Matter because it is a fantasy throughout. You know, it's it's his Tolkien books. Um, So they're set in a a couple of dimensions that work in a fantastical sense. Uh, I think it would be best handled by um, either a very strong showrunner or one director to do the whole thing. And I'm not suggesting myself at all. Um, but that was something we talked about doing. It never got further than a conversation between me and King. People are constantly trying to do that, yeah, uh, they tried to do it as as a feature film that did not work out. You know, a, a, seven books does not make a ninety minute eighty nine minute movie. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, they tried to do. Um, and the books were written over decades and they evolved as the writer has evolved over those years. So they each have a very distinct personality and different from one another. Um, so I think it would first of all, take a whole lot of money, but there's a lot of money to be. Spent on the streaming platforms these days, uh, and with Stephen King's name on it, and if the right filmmaker were attached, uh, I think it's still a possibility. for For years, um, Amblin had it, uh, right. and I don't think they still have those rights.
1: To say one nice thing about uh, the 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 last attempt at it, I did quite like Idris Elba as the the gunslinger Roland Deschain but uh
0: yeah oh well he's he's just a great actor in fact absolutely coincidentally i'm going to see the beast today with idris elba Uh
1: ah yes idris versus a lion
0: yeah exactly (laughs)
1: let's go a cgi lion cgi lion
0: (laughs) not like the green lion i have outside nice guy productions world headquarters
1: that is about to be refurbished yeah that's right all right the next question comes from Uli Lamel's old assistant, Mark. He writes, I saw your Facebook post about Uli's film, The Tenderness of the Wolves. What is your honest take on Uli as an artist whose career lasted several decades?
0: Well, it, it's very interesting. Um, Tenderness of the Wolves was an art film based on the same true story that the Peter Laurie classic M was based on. And it's a very creepy, very realistic, um, beautifully realized film. You know, he partnered with uh, Fassbender who produced that film, Renier uh, uh His career took a very sharp turn when he had success with a little movie called The Boogeyman. And there was a Boogeyman 2 and 3 and a lot of other movies that, that were not as well known. I think it's a shame that he never really went back to the depth of storytelling that he showed in tenderness of the wolves that he decided more to go for a B movie audience because he obviously had a lot of talent and, and that movie still stands up as, as a very impressive piece of German cinema.
1: There you have it. Another, uh, a a hidden gem for, uh, all our postmortem fans go. Yeah,
0: that was one of my know. trailers from hell commentaries. Yeah.
1: Aha! There, you, there you go. I, I'll, I'll, we'll have to, we'll have to post the link. We um, will. Yeah, plug our friends over trailers to hell. We always like doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, Joe and Josh;
1: they're the best. That's right. Tom asks, "How did Mickey Rourke come to be cast in Nightmare Cinema as the projectionist, and what was it like working with one of Hollywood's most talented and enigmatic actors?" Um, It
0: was amazing, it was odd, it was satisfying, it was frustrating, Um, but it was also an honor. Um, How we got him for our tiny little movie is this. I originally wanted Matt Frewer to play the projectionist, and I kind of had him in mind and would still love for him to do that should there ever be a Nightmare Cinema 2. Our producer, Mark Canton was friends with mickey and he said i want to bring in mickey rourke to play the projectionist he only has to work a day and he's an academy award nominated actor he brings a lot of quality it'll help us sell it around the world and this is the one thing it wasn't really a request it was this is what we're doing it's the only input that the producers had in that regard where they really were insistent upon it. I certainly didn't argue with it because Mickey Rourke is amazing, he's great. Um, he is famously complicated. Uh, I uh, talked to filmmakers I knew who'd worked with him who said that you know he was great, but boy, it was, it was a struggle. So I was intimidated by the idea of working with him. I never met him until the day of production. And he came on the set. Um, there are probably things about this that I shouldn't tell publicly, so I won't. But but the main thing was I was very intimidated by him. He came on, you could tell it was a money gig at first and he was just there. He, he hadn't really studied his lines or anything. Um, but then once he and I were talking and as the guy who wrote the wraparound segments, I was able to talk to him about the character that I had created on the page and because we're both named mick i think that was helpful but first i was intimidated but we got along really well and he yeah, ended yeah. up really having fun making this movie and nobody expected it but at the end of uh, you know when eight o'clock rolled around uh, at the end of the day that was it there were no more takes from mickey there was nothing more it was a, okay good night and uh that was our shooting day. So, and, um, and
1: he gave you his uh, his knee brace. <laughs>
0: he gave me the brace, yeah, as a memento. I haven't seen or spoken to him since, but we nope. actually had a genuinely good time working together on that. Um, he was not a guy who came in knowing all of the all of the dialogue and the like, but he didn't really need to once we got going, and with a little help from cue cards. Um, it, it uh it really I, I thought he was great in it
1: yeah uh, i mean it was it was uh it was definitely one of the more complicated days um, it honestly. was yeah uh it was it was also there was a you know there was a lot of uh, people walking on pins and needles uh to make sure he was he was happy and taken care of and uh he had a lot of peculiar requests that we fulfilled uh well one of them was uh, letting him build his costume
0: yeah Um, the the costume that he had made a black leather costume that he worked with somebody to design you know without consulting us and then gave us the bill for five thousand dollars
1: it was it was quite a look though Uh, (laughs) it, it was indeed I I talked to somebody who just worked with him in another similar situation. Uh, It was like a one or two day thing. And uh, they also fell prey to... uh, letting mickey create his own outfit it sounds like he might have shown up in something very similar
0: (laughs) (laughs) but i Uh, must say i ended up really liking him and working with him
1: yeah i got yeah and and you learn
0: something you learn something every time out there are challenges with uh, anyone who's reached a certain stature has certain requirements and and different ways of dealing with them because they've been treated special for years and years and so once I understood how to work with him. We both genuinely had a good time.
1: Yeah, no. And it was fun to watch him like psych himself up between takes. And he always gave you kind of something new and different every time. And <laughs>
0: Yes. Uh, the yeah. editors may not have liked that as much as we did,
1: but uh. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was cool. It was, it was, a, it was cool to watch him work for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Anthony writes, I recently bought and read a life in the cinema. Mick's collection of short stories, in case you didn't know, and I loved it. My question is, at the end of the book, Mick included the screenplay for a film called Flesh and Fantasy, based on Chocolate. What made Mick decide to publish his screenplay? And also, what about the story Chocolate so captivated Mick that it kept him coming back to it as a feature script and later his Masters of Horror episode?
0: Well, it was interesting because I had nine stories, and I didn't feel like it filled out a book. But I'd also adapted Chocolate as that screenplay, originally called Double Vision, mm-hmm. um, and then Flesh and Fantasy. Um, at the time I wrote the screenplay, sexuality in films was verboten. They they had had the the uh, Fatal Attraction's and all those steamy thrillers of the 80s and early 90s. But at this point, they went the opposite direction, and R-rated films were not made as much. And this definitely has sexuality in it. So, But I thought it would be interesting. And as Stephen King says in the introduction to the book, um, it's sort of a masterclass in adaptation of... I took my short story and then right after you read the short story, there's the screenplay. So you can see w- what the jumping off point was and where it went because the short story ends halfway through where the feature screenplay ends up. So we could never get the the feature film made. It was also the only time I've written something based on a dream because mm. if I dream, I don't remember. I rarely remember my dreams. Um, And I'm sure I have them because everyone does. But in this job, as I've said often, I dream awake for a living. So writers and storytellers of any kind, they are dreaming on the page or on the screen. In this case, I'd had a dream where I felt what it was like to actually stab and kill someone. And I'd feel the hot blood running down my arms from the wound. And and it was, I'm pleased to say, it sickened me. It revolted me, it didn't excite me. And I felt that it was such a potent experience that I really wanted to put it on film. And when the opportunity came to do Masters of Horror, I thought that was a really great opportunity to, to tell that story in uh in the the proper platform.
1: And it's uh it's it's a it's a really cool episode and it's a really cool performance from Henry Thomas.
0: Henry uh, is great and fearless in it. One of my favorite actors. Yeah.
1: If you uh if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It's available on Screenbox. Screenbox, that's right. Screenbox, our friends at Bloody Disgusting's uh horror streaming app, Screenbox. So, give it a give it a shout
0: it's it's definitely a little different and a lot of uh real bloodthirsty horror fans accused me of it not being a horror film and uh i tested it on some of the other directors when i was in the editing room with one scene in particular, which I won't spoil right now, but once you see it, you'll know. And uh, I had John Landis and Toby Hooper both going, oh, geez, yow! (laughs) They were horrified by it.
1: There you go. You you horrify the masters of horror. Yes, we have it. Horror lives under a broad umbrella. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Fan of the podcast, Renee Rivas writes, My latest horror short film is currently touring the festival circuit and is doing very well thus far, winning awards and gaining recognition. Aside from being noticed in the festival circuit, what would be the best advice for taking the next step on getting the short film into the hands of agents? Well, that is the agent question again. Yeah. Well, but that's the step you
0: have to take. They are the Mm -hmm. people with the keys to the kingdom. So it's, it's cold calling them, it's, it's alerting them. You know, it's, you can try sending it directly, but just blind sending is not the best way to do it. Making calls, telling their assistant, you know, this film won this award at this festival. Um, but it's, it's really hard to get people's attention yeah. until it has made a stir. But once an agent feels like they can make money off of you, that's when they're interested. So the festival circuit is the best first step. You've taken the best two steps. You've made your movies yeah, and you've gotten into the festival circuit and step three, you've gotten recognition and success from those films. So it's just a matter of, you know, you're not going to go to CAA or WME or whatever exists these days uh, and, and go to the top rank agent and get signed up unless they happen to be at the festival where your your film plays and you can get them to see it there. But um, shorts are a good way to do it, but nobody wants to sit through a feature that's a, a festival feature that, that, you know, time is really of the essence. On the weekend, mm-hmm. they take home literally 30 scripts and read the first five or 10 pages of each before throwing them on the on the pile. So it's just how you get their attention the festival is the best way to get their attention. And then it's just a matter of trying to finagle either a meeting or a phone call or, or even sending them a link to the movie through their assistant. Maybe you can get the assistant interested in watching. And if the assistant likes it, will say to his or her boss, this is something I think uh, you might enjoy.
1: I think that's all really great advice. I was going to say, if you haven't released it online and if it's already been touring festivals, maybe it's time to try to find a way to put it out on the Internet in a splashy way. Because, you know, not everything goes viral, but sometimes it does. And Well, you might
0: even try going to Fangoria and Dread Central and those places because they will sometimes link to short films
1: that's right that's right and and uh you know that might help build up some some more buzz um some more recognition that that might you know naturally organically you know lead to someone finding the material and then reaching out to you as opposed to the other way around you know um I had a friend who uh and this is this is this would be the uh, the other piece of advice I would give um It's great to have a good short, but in this day and age, um, finding someone who is just a director uh, work is very challenging for agents and managers. Um, And so it really, really can help if you can write too. And, you know, if you do have a short that's playing at the festivals and you do have a short that you put online and it's luckily enough to get some traction and attention You really want to have a really great feature script in your back pocket. Yeah. Um, Because that's going to be the difference maker between them just saying, oh, this is a nice short. We had a nice meeting. Stay in touch. And them saying, oh, this is a short I can use to get people's attention and maybe get them to read your screenplay. Yeah, Uh, because
0: you're right. They aren't interested in shorts. They're interested in selling movies. Right. Making movies. Uh, Another thing that would be hugely helpful, but is also extremely difficult is to get a name actor in your short. Yeah. Then Absolutely. you've got attention, you know, uh, and that, and but- that helps
1: helps kind of open the doors to the the bigger film festivals. Um, you know, and, and I've definitely seen it happen. You know, my friend made a really great kind of Christmas Carol inspired short, And he built this whole uh, almost Pee Wee Herman esque, puppet couch that came to life and um it was it was a really charming short uh and it and it ended up he had uh, one of the the a- recurring actors from breaking bad in the short and it yeah. helped him get in tons of festivals it helped but it mostly the most important thing was it helped him get a lot of traction online yeah. and literally you know uta which is one of the, the biggest agencies reached out to him and he didn't have a feature you know, he kind of, he kind of missed, he missed the window.
0: Yeah. You know? You've got to make your own opportunity and then fulfill it. You know, yeah. if, if they're going to come to you and say, what else you got? And it's a 15 minutes short, they go, well, I can't do anything with that.
1: No, there's no, there is no financial markets uh, for short films and short no. filmmaking. It is, it is purely uh, for the love of the game and as a calling card piece. Exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. So we wish you a lot of luck. Uh, Absolutely, Nick, uh, you have survived another Ask Mick anything.
0: <laughs> Always fun. And Joe, please let our beloved audience know how they can ask me whatever the hell they like.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. The, the the whatever the hell we like, plus you know curated through a, a filter. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yes, filter uh, Joe. Yes, that's right. Ah, uh, me, I'm the big barrier. Um, all right, you can send questions to Mick uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM. Um, you can also send them to me on social media at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively, or you can send them to our new email address, askmickanything anything at gmail.com. Uh, we kind of scour the, the social media feeds and our, our email for the best questions and, uh, we'll see if they make it to air.
0: And thank you for the questions and thanks for listening. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.